Poetry for Funerals is a collection of reflective and soulful poems that pay homage to loved ones who have passed on and provide solace and comfort to those left behind. Whether mourning for a loved one or seeking solace, the poems found in Poetry for Funerals reminds the reader that love endures even in death. To purchase the collection, visit poetryforfunerals.com or find the link in this podcast. This is a Drama Merchant audio production. The Drama Merchant offers you the Radio Play Hour. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Radio Play Hour, a unique audio experience as we revive classic radio dramas, feature new works, workshop ideas, and indulge in some good old-fashioned audio storytelling. I'm the Drama Merchant, your host, and in this episode I'm thrilled to present All the World's a Grave, a story from my collection, Astounding Stories, Volume 1. Death isn't a bad thing. It just needs the right marketing pitch. Join me, Nathan Schultz, as I narrate C.C. McCapp's All the World's a Grave. It all began when the new bookkeeping machine of a large Midwestern coffin manufacturer slipped the cog or blew a transistor or something. It was fantastic that the error, one of two decimal places, should enjoy a straight run of OKs, human and mechanical, clear down the line. But when the figures clacked out at the last clacking out station, there it was. The figures were now sacred, immutable, and it is doubtful whether the president of the concern or the chairman of the board would have dared question them, even if either of those two gentlemen had been in town. As for the advertising manager, the last thing he wanted to do was question them. He carried them, they were the budget for the coming fiscal year, into his office staggering a little on the way, and dropped dazedly into his chair. They showed the budget for his own department as exactly 100 times what he'd been expecting. That is to say, 50 times what he'd put in for. When the initial shock began to wear off, his face assumed an expression of intense thought. In about five minutes, he leapt from his chair, dashed out of the office with a shouted syllable or two for his secretary, and got his car out of the parking lot. At home, he tossed clothes into a travelling bag and barged towards the door, giving his wife a quick kiss and an equally quick explanation. He didn't bother to call the airport. He meant to be on the next plane east and no nonsense about it. With one thing and another, the economy hadn't been exactly in overdrive that year. The predictions for the Christmas season were gloomy. Early retail figures bore them out. Gift-buying dribbled along feebly until Thanksgiving, despite brave speeches by the administration. The holiday passed more in self-pity than in thankfulness among the owners of gift-orientated businesses. Then, on Friday the following Thanksgiving, the coffin ad struck. Struck may be too mild a word. People on the street saw feverishly working crews at holiday rates slapping up posters on billboards. The first poster was a dilly. A toothy and toothsome young woman leaned over a coffin she'd been unwrapping. She smiled as if she'd just received overtures of matrimony from an 80-year-old billionaire. There was a Christmas tree in the background, and the coffin was appropriately wrapped. 
So was she. She looked as if she'd just gotten out of bed, or was ready to get into it. For hot-blooded young men, and not so young, the message was plain. The motto, the gift that will last more than a lifetime, seemed hardly to the point. Those at home were assailed on TV with a variety of bright and clever skits of the same import. Some of them hinted that, if the young lady's gratitude were really impulsive, and the bedroom too far away, the coffin might be comfy. Of course, the more settled elements of the population were not neglected. For the older married man, there was a blow directly between the eyes. Do you want your widow to be half safe? And for the spinster without immediate hopes, I dreamt I was caught dead without my virgin form casket. Newspapers, magazines, and every other medium added to the assault, never letting it cool. The public reeled, blinked, shook its head to clear it, gawked, and rushed out to buy. Christmas was not going to be a failure after all. Everyone who possibly could get into the act did. Grocery supermarkets put in casket departments. The Association of Pharmaceutical Retailers, who felt they had some claim to priority, tried to get court injunctions to keep caskets out of service stations, but were unsuccessful because the judges were all out buying caskets. Beauty parlours showed real ingenuity in merchandising. Roads and streets clogged with delivery trucks, rented trailers, and whatever else could hold a coffin. The stock market went completely mad. Strikes were declared and settled within hours. Congress was called into session early. The president got authority to ration lumber and other materials. Then suddenly there was starvation. Short supply. State laws were passed against cremation under heavy lobby pressure. A new racket called box jacking blossomed overnight. The advertising manager who put the thing over had been fighting with all the formidable weapons of his breed to make his plant managers build up a stockpile. They had, but it went like a toupee in a wind tunnel. Competitive coffin manufacturers were caught napping, but by Wednesday after Thanksgiving, they, along with the original one, were on 24-hour, seven-day basis. Still, only a fraction of the demand could be met. Jet passenger planes were stripped of their seats, supplied with Yankee gold, and sent to plunder the world of its coffins. It might be supposed that Christmas goods other than caskets would take a bad dumping. That was not so. Such was the upsurge of prosperity, and such was the shortage of coffins that nearly everything, with a few exceptions, enjoyed the biggest season on record. On Christmas Eve, the frenzy slumped to a crawl, though on Christmas morning, there were still optimists out prowling the empty stores. The nation sat down to breathe. Mostly, it sat on coffins because there wasn't space in the living rooms for any other furniture. There was hardly an individual in the United States who didn't have, in case of a sudden sharp pain in the chest, several boxes to choose from. As for the rest of the world, it had better not die just now, or it would be literally a case of dust to dust. Of course, everyone expected a doozy of a slump after Christmas, but our advertising manager, who by now was of course sales manager and first vice president, also wasn't settling for any boom and bust. He'd been a frustrated victim of his choice of industries for so many years that now, with his teeth in something, he was going to give it the old bite. He gave people a short breathing spell to arrange their coffin payments and move the presents out of the front rooms. Then, late in January, his new campaign came down like a hundred megatonner. Within a week, everyone saw quite clearly that his Christmas models were now obsolete. The coffin became the new status symbol. 
The auto industry was of course demolished. Even people who had enough money to buy a new car weren't going to trade in the old one and let the new one stand out in the rain. The garages were full of coffins. Petroleum went along with the autos, though there were those who whispered knowingly that the same people merely moved over into a new industry. It was noticeable that the centre of it became Detroit. A few trucks and buses were still being built, but that was all. Some of the new caskets were true works of art. Others, well, there was variety. Compact models appeared in which occupants' feet were to be doubled up alongside his ears. One manufacturer pushed a circular model, claiming that by all the laws of nature, the fetal position was only the right one. Possibly the largest of all was the togetherness model, with graduated recesses for father, mother, eight children, plus two playmates, and in the far corner beyond the baby, the cat. Join the lively arts scene on the Gold Coast and contribute your time to local community theatres. Volunteering is a crucial part of any thriving theatre community, and it's also an excellent opportunity to gain arts-related experience while giving back to your community. Jugan Theatre and Tweed Theatre are now offering opportunities for front-of-house and behind-the-scenes work for individuals in the southern Gold Coast or Tweed regions. Whether you're skilled with a hammer, love customer service, or interested in stage lighting or costume design, Tugan Theatre and Tweed Theatre are looking for passionate individuals to join their team. Contact information for Tugan and Tweed can be found at www.goldcoasttheatre.com.au or click on the link in this podcast. Let's collaborate and volunteer to help the thriving cultural scene on the Gold Coast. Now, back to our story. The slump was over. Still, economists swore that the new boom couldn't last either, but the advertising manager's eyes gleamed brighter all the time. He must get people to use the coffins, and now he had all the money to work with that he could use. The new note was woven in so gradually that it is not easy to put a finger on any one ad and say, it began here. One of the first was surely the widely printed one showing a tattooed, smiling young man with his chin thrust out manfully, laying in a coffin. He was rugged looking and likeable, not too rugged for the spindly limbs to identify with, and he oozed, even though obviously dead, masculinity at every pore. Neither must one overlook the singing commercials. Possibly, the catchiest of these, a really cute little thing was achieved by jazzing up the funeral march. It started gradually, and it was all so unviolent that few saw it as suicide. Teenagers began having popping-off parties. Some of their elders protested a little, but adults were taking it up too. The tired and the unappreciated, the ill and the heavy-laden, lay down in growing numbers and expired. A black market in poisons operated for a little while, but soon pinched out. Such was the pressure of persuasion that few needed artificial aids. The boxes were very comfortable. People just closed their eyes and exited smiling. The hippies, who had their own models of coffin, mouldy, scroungy and without lids, since hippies insisted on being seen, placed their boxes on the Grant Avenue in San Francisco. They died of highly intellectual expressions and eventually were washed by the gentle rain. Of course, there were voices shouting calamity. When aren't there? But in the long run, and not a very long one at that, they availed naught. 
It isn't hard to imagine the reactions of the rest of the world, so let us imagine a few. The communist bloc immediately gave its stamp of disapproval, denouncing the movement as a filthy capitalist imperialistic pig plot. Red China, which had been squabbling with Russia for some time about a matter of method, screamed for immediate war. Russia exposed this as patent stupidity, saying that if the capitalists wanted to die, warring upon them would only help them. China surreptitiously tried out the thing as an answer to excess population and found it good. It also appealed to the well-known melancholy facet of the Russian nature. Besides, after pondering for several days, the Red Bloc decided it could not afford to fall behind in anything, so it started its own program, explaining with much logic how it differed. An elderly British philosopher endorsed the movement on the grounds that a temporary setback in evolution was preferable to facing up to anything. The Free Bloc, the Red Bloc, the Neutral Bloc, and such scraps as had been too obtuse to find themselves a bloc were drawn into the whirlpool in an amazingly short time, if in a variety of ways. In less than two years, the world was rid of most of what had been tormenting it. Oddly enough, the country where the movement began was the last to succumb completely. Or perhaps it's not so odd. Coffin maker to the world, the American casket industry had by now almost completely automated box making and grave digging, with some interesting assembling lines and packaging arrangements. There still remained the jobs of management and distribution. The president of General Mortuary, a jovial fellow affectionately called Sarcophagus Sam, put it well. As long as I have a single prospective customer and a single stockholder, he said, maligning a stogie and beetling his brows at one reporter who showed up for the press conference, I'll try putting him in a coffin so I can pay him a dividend. Finally, though, a man who thought he must be the last living human wandered contently about the city of Denver looking for the coffin he liked best. He settled at last upon a rich mahogany number with platinum trimmings and an automatic self-adjusting cadaver contour into spring plastic-covered mattress with a built-in bar. He climbed in, drew himself a generous slug of fine scotch, giggled as the mattress prodded him exploringly, closed his eyes, and sighed in solid comfort. Soft music played as the lid closed itself. From a building nearby, a turkey buzzard swooped down, cawing in raucous anger because it had let its attention wander for a moment. It clawed screaming at the solid cover, hissing in frustration, and finally gave up. It flapped into the air again, still grumbling. It was tired of living on dead small rodents and coyotes. It thought it would take a swing over to Los Angeles where the pickings were pretty good. As it moved westward over parched hills, it noticed two black dots a few miles to its left. It circled over for a closer look, then grunted and went on its way. It had seen them before. The old prospector and his mule had been in the mountains for so long the buzzard had concluded they didn't know how to die. The prospector whose name was Adams trudged behind his mule towards the buildings that shimmered in the heat, humming to himself now and then or addressing some remark to the beast. When he reached the outskirts of Denver, he realized something was amiss. He stood and gazed at the quiet scene. Nothing moved, except some skinny pack rats and a few sparrows foraging for grain among the unburied coffins. 
entire nations, he said to the mule. Martians? A half-buried piece of newspaper fluttered in the breeze. He walked forward slowly and picked it up. It told him enough so that he understood. They're gone, Evie, he said to the mule. All gone. He put his arm affectionately around her neck. I reckon it's up to me and you again. We gotta start all over. He stood back and gazed at her with mild reproach. I sure hope they don't favor your side of the house so much this time. You have just heard All the World's a Grave by C.C. McCapp, narrated and edited by Nathan Schultz, with music by Kevin McLeod and sound effects by Nathan Schultz. If you enjoyed this production and want to explore more astounding stories, head over to the Drama Merchant website. You can pay what you think is fair for the next 30 days or become a member for $7.99 per month, unlocking access to individual stories and playlists. Your contributions help us produce future audio productions. Additionally, we would love to hear your thoughts. Leave a review on the Drama Merchant Facebook page or on the post featuring this episode. All constructive feedback is appreciated. Don't forget to subscribe to the Drama Merchant for free and receive emails, access to blogs and updates on future radio plays and audio stories. Goodbye for now. This was a Drama Merchant Audio production.